0: Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth. Helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our healthcare system as it exists and as it could be. For better healthcare and a better healthcare system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve.
1: Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on WebTalkRadio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of theDoctorscore.com physician rating website. On today's show, we're going to be discussing visual illusions. We're going to be discussing how our brains integrate the stimuli that come from our eyes to create a coherent mental image. Visual illusions are important to our discussion of healthcare because understanding how our minds interpret visual stimuli is also important for how we interpret other things. There's a, a correlation between visual illusions and the cognitive errors, the ways our thinking can go wrong. By understanding the ways in which our brains interpret what we see, we can understand all sorts of things, including why it is that different people look at healthcare reform and see totally different things. One of our earlier guests, Peter Ferrara talked to us about health care and said that the health care reform legislation meant the end of good health care in America. On the other hand, we hear President Obama taking, saying that we've taken a step forward towards better health care for all Americans. How is it that two people can look at one health care reform bill and see totally different things? Well, it's because our brains don't just see things uh, they, in, our brains interpret things. In the case of visual stimuli, we in, our brain interprets things in terms of the context of the the, the colors and, and brightnesses uh, surrounding the thing we're looking at. And when it comes to judgments about health care, about the health behaviors we make, about physicians' diagnoses, about uh, what doctors think of different regulations, of how we think our health system is going to work for us. Our brain interprets what we see and hear in the context of other things. Our guest today is an experimental psychologist, Dr. Alan Gilchrist, a professor of psychology at Rutgers University. He's the author of the book, Seeing in Black and White. This is a book that describes the intricacies of research on how the eye and the mind work together to perceive how dark different shades of gray are. The visual illusions he's created to study this phenomenon are extraordinary. Alan also teaches a course on critical thinking, which I think is also an essential element of what we're trying to get at here in our understanding of the healthcare system. Our talk with him today will help us see and understand our healthcare system and its surrounding controversies more clearly. Alan, thanks so much for joining me on the show. I am so intrigued by your your work, your research uh, on illusions. Can you just start by telling our listeners what are illusions?
2: Well, I I have a very simple uh, approach to the question of illusions that not everybody in my field of visual perception agrees with, but uh, to me an illusion is a discrepancy between what's actually there and what you perceive, what you see. Um, So you know, there there's philosophical objections to that, but uh, that's basically my starting point.
1: Well, that's interesting because I have the sense from your work that that um, well, what we see um, certainly isn't always what's there by a long shot. It's it's it, it, that our perceptions um, determine what our mind sees almost well, as much as our eyes.
2: Well, um, I'd be careful on that point. But first of all, I, I, I do want to say that I think that our visual system is very, very successful overall. I mean, I uh, I don't look at the visual system as being a highly flawed system. I think most of the time we're in pretty good visual contact with reality. That is to say we see the size of objects, we see which way they're moving, we see their color and so forth rather accurately. So I think, but I think that illusions, visual illusions are important Not because they're necessarily large illusions um, or that we we see these illusions all the time, but they're kind of the signature of how the visual software works. In other words, uh, how does your visual system, by which I mean the eye and and those parts of the brain that process what you see, uh, illusions I think are great for giving us really important clues as to what kind of software we use. By the way, when I say visual perception, let me just say a word because that may not be immediately obvious to to lay people. Uh, We're talking about very basic vision, like how do you tell the size of an object no matter what distance it's at? Uh, In my own case, I study how we perceive white and black and gray surfaces, and there one of the important problems is how do you see shades of gray correctly when the illumination level changes?
1: Yes. Now... That has i 'm sure our listeners are familiar with some of these basic illusions. You have a, a, a disc a circle of a filled in circle of a given grayness. If you put that circle inside a light colored square, it appears pretty dark. You put it, that same disc in a dark colored square it seems light, and you put these these things next to each other and you you would swear that the the disc inside the light square is darker than the one inside the dark square, and yet the disks are identical. Um, That is just an amazing phenomenon. That's probably the most basic. I think we've seen the same thing with respect to size, that if you have two disks of the same size surround one by small circles, the other by big circles, the one surrounded by big circles will look smaller than the disk that's surrounded by small circles. Yeah, But but the the most amazing thing was the illusion that you – you shared with me for my book, Compartments, where you have um, black letters spelling the word black, and you have white letters spelling the word white, and the white letters are in a shaded area. And it all is, is beautiful except for the, the fact that the white letters are actually darker than the black letters. I mean, that is, that is, that is a phenomenal illusion.
2: Yeah, the, the first illusion you mentioned uh, where you have a gray uh, surface on a white background another. Gray surface on a black background, which is called simultaneous contrast. Uh, that's actually uh, a smaller illusion. Uh, you know, we measure this oftentimes with what's called the Munsell scale, where uh, it goes from about a two being a black to a 9.5 being a white. On that scale, simultaneous contrast is about half a step or three quarters of a step, but uh, some of these other illusions can be much bigger, and in the case of the the, the letters, the black and white letters, uh, by putting the white letters in a shadow uh, and putting the black letters in in sunlight, let's say, uh, we we just we find that the white letters actually reflect less light into your eye than than the uh, black letters in sunlight, because the amount of light that comes into your eye from a surface uh, depends not only on the shade of gray of the surface, but it depends, in fact, more on the amount of illumination so that we're left with a situation where the amount of light that's reflected by a given surface actually tells your eye nothing about its shade of gray because because depending on illumination conditions, any a surface of any shade of gray can reflect any amount of light.
1: So, so this brain, this computer of ours, is doing some sort of mental calculation. When it looks at the disk surrounded by... Um, different colors Um, That's a relatively simple calculation it makes and it can be off by a little bit but now you're you're adding in this additional variable of illumination and there's something in the wiring and software of the brain that allows us to make you know estimates to get a sense of how light or dark something is under various lighting conditions yeah and and what what fascinates me most about this is not um, – I mean, as fascinating as these illusions are, and they truly are gorgeous. I, I wonder perhaps if there's some website that uh, we can um, send our, our listeners to to see some of these things. I, I know there is, and we can put something online. Um, but um, what, what fascinates me most is that I, I get the sense that this same wiring, this same kind of calculation that your brain is doing for – for lightness and darkness, for shades of gray, um, that, that same kind of wiring must be going on for our other senses and, and our other ways of thinking, that there's probably some relatively uniform way in which our brains are organized that allows it to do thinking and calculation, such that when we hear sounds in relation to other sounds, we, we have a sense of their loudness, um, uh,
2: yes, I think that is true. That that you find parallels in all the senses. So you're going to find auditory illusions that are very much analogous to uh, visual illusions. Now, I don't know if you're also suggesting parallels between uh, sensations and perceptions, uh, and and also uh, cognitive matters like the way we think. Are you are you aiming toward that uh, parallel as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, I I look at some of the things in our medical world, and, you know, I I, I see an objective reality, um, and then I see people in different groups perceiving that reality completely differently. It's as though, for example, um, we have a wonderful drug for the treatment of patients with acne uh, called Accutane. Oh, What a great drug. It cures even the worst, most severe acne, but has one little minor problem with it. It causes severe birth defects if you get pregnant while it's in your body. And here we are. We're giving it to teenage girls. So, you know, I think it's very reasonable for the government to say, you know, we might need some controls on this because we want to make sure that we don't, you know, that doctors aren't causing birth defects with this drug. And so they put in place some program, and this program, say, involves – well, when it first came out, it was like an hour wait on the phone to talk to some bureaucrat to get all the paperwork done. Now, that's an hour wait on the phone. That 60 minutes is an objective reality, like, I guess, the number of photons coming off of some surface. Yeah. And yet, we dermatologists, we would look at that hour wait and we would say, oh, this is a horrendous waste of our time. This is way too much. This is totally inappropriate. It's not good for patients. It's, it's a bad it's it's, it's bad and it's it's insulting. We shouldn't have to wait this hour on the phone. On the other hand, you know, I look at the people who do volunteer work for the March of Dimes and uh, or who are pediatricians who, you know, they dedicate their lives to reducing the amount of birth defects in the world. And they look at that same hour and they see something completely different. You know, it's as though it were a level of illumination, which could be accurately measure the number of photons coming off the surface, but one person would perceive it as dark and the other would perceive it as light. And it just seems that there's something going on in the brain that says, okay, I see 60 minutes, but how I interpret that 60 minutes is completely different depending on other things going on in my brain, the the context in which I'm observing that 60 minutes.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there definitely are, are parallels striking parallels between uh, visual illusions and what I might call cognitive illusions or cognitive errors. Um, and I, Now, I, I should add at this point, though, in terms of visual perception, uh, contrary to what probably a lot of lay people think, visual perception is largely insulated from uh, thinking processes. So uh, visual perception, what we see tends to follow its own rules, and you can't change what you see very much by by the way you think. So I just want to make that point. But on the other hand, the reason I think there are close parallels between perception and thought, in my opinion, is because I think that uh, in evolution, I think that uh, that, uh, thinking evolved from seeing. Obviously, seeing uh, evolved much earlier uh, in evolution, and uh, thinking, human, homo sapiens, thinking uh, evolved much later. But I tend to think that the senses, and in particular vision, was kind of the prototype for the evolution of thinking. Uh, anyway, but uh, but there certainly are these parallels between um, these these cognitive errors and perceptual errors.
1: So, so they really are errors. Your your brain is um, when you you look at the the grayscale levels, the the, the level of how dark you perceive something is on a page, how dark gray, it's an error to think that, I guess, this, these black letters are darker than the white letters because, in reality, they are lighter than the white letters.
2: Well, that's a little tricky um, because when we look at that one with the black and white letters, uh, uh, if the question is, um, okay, the white letters portrayed in a shadow – on the page, when that page is printed, it's printed in a darker ink than the ink used to print the black letters. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, that image uh, represents re- representing black and white letters with the, with the white letters in the shadow. Uh, actually, you're, you're, if, if that was the real world, you'd be seeing things correctly, because the white letters in the shadow, even though they're sending your eye less light, they are in fact white. Mm. So, in that sense, in that sense, you're seeing the world. You're seeing it correctly. Um, so that gets a little bit tricky when yes. you're talking about an, uh, a photograph or an image, which is a representation of something in the world.
1: So, in, in essence, you were you were at the very beginning saying, So well, Steve, um, we're not trying to say." the visual system doesn't work well. In fact, the visual system works great. The visual system is able to distinguish white letters from black letters even when the white letters are, in fact, darker than, the, yes. you know, on the page. Right. So, you know, so our interpretations are generally very good. Um, so, but you would – errors in thinking now, you know, when I – Consider the how the the sixty minutes is perceived by two different groups. I'm not sure really that either group is in error. They just have completely different perceptions. Are, are there are there issues in thought where you see that errors in thinking are made uh, due to these um, the the way our computer our mental computer works?
2: Oh, I think so. Um, in the case of the sixty minutes, of course, one has to make a distinction between if you had the two groups of people. Estimating how long it is, you may or may not find that they would estimate it differently, but then there's a separate question I think that you're driving at, which is that for a doctor uh, with all the pressures on him or her uh, sixty minutes is is just a you know, long time to be to be on hold uh, It's not that it would be necessarily perceived as more than sixty minutes but uh, but I can think of other just try to think of other errors where two people see the same thing and and, and come to to very different conclusions. Um, I think this this happens a lot as you've noted yourself in your book, uh, depending on people's background and the beliefs that they bring with them to the situation, uh, they're going to tend to interpret what they see in that in that context. And with that with that perspective, um, if if we talk about you know cognitive errors in general, uh, there's a number of. I mean, what I think is important is that the errors we make in thinking are not random; they are very systematic. Uh, they're not just all over the map. Uh, and I think, for example, I teach a course called critical thinking, and in a way that is parallel to my my visual work because. Uh, because of this notion of errors, but one thing I did years ago is I I, I made a collection of all the kinds of cognitive errors that you find in the field of psychology and the research that's been done, and in fact, an awful lot of what's called cognitive psychology today is, is nothing more than a description of the various kinds of errors that we make in our thinking, so there's things like cognitive dissonance, confirmation bias, selective attention, gambler's fallacy, so this goes on and on. But uh, when I pull these all together and and I take my students on a kind of a tour of these cognitive errors, one thing that that sort of jumped out at me is that the biggest common denominator in all these errors we make is egocentrism. So that shows you that, again, it reinforces the notion that these errors aren't just random, that they, they they have a particular grain to them, they go in a particular direction.
1: You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on WebTalkRadio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman. We're speaking today with Dr. Alan Gilchrist, professor of psychology at Rutgers University. Um, Alan, with respect to this uh, uh, non-random, systematic errors people make, let's talk about this in, in, in terms of uh, you know healthcare. For just to, uh, bring back to healthcare, um, sure. We. Um, you know we we dermatologists we're, we 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 do really great skin surgery um, and um, we offer patients a lot and I'm sure the surgeons in in their department they're they're offering patients great care too and and um but we don't always recognize in dermatology that the surgeons are doing such a great job, and the surgeons don't always recognize <laughs> that we in dermatology are doing a great job. part of it. I think it's very simple. It's selection bias, which can aff- certainly can aff- affect people's perception. You know, the happy patients in the surgeon's office don't go to the dermatologist, they stay with the surgeons. The unhappy patients might see us and similarly our happy patients stay with us in dermatology and our unhappy patients go to the surgeons. And so they have a uh, each group has a little bit of a, a warped uh, experience seeing patients from the other groups. But right. beyond that we have this way of viewing the world. We all talk with, within our group. We talk to one another. We have our way of seeing things, and you go over there in, in their group, and they have their way of seeing things. And well, if they're t- sharing their experiences with one another, th- they get to thinking that the folks in the other group um, are different from them, and um, and, and these conflicts result. And, you know, I, I, I when I raised this with an issue, people said to me, you know, Steve uh, and Alan, you, you brought up the issue of evolution. You know, we evolved as pack animals, you know, and, uh-huh. uh, you know, we are in this uh, – we are in our little packs within our little groups within the medical care system as a whole with – well, even within our medical care system, doctors as a whole will have a, a way of viewing the world and saying, "Okay, well, we as a group are different from the people outside of healthcare." But even within our healthcare group, we're divided up in, into smaller groups, and I wonder if if part of the cognition um, evolution relates to um, you know what would help people succeed, you know, as 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 a pack.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess that's that's certainly a plausible, uh, you know, as with so many of these, uh, well, we call these evolutionary psychology stories, which, uh, you know, there's always a risk of, of, of telling a kind of a just-so story. It's easy in hindsight to go back and say, well, don't you see um, this makes sense from an evolutionary perspective? Uh, and it may be. I mean, that's perfectly plausible. Uh, these are hard theories to test, but... Um, but, yes, I think, I think in, 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 as members of different groups, uh, for one thing, we get exposed to different kinds of information, a little bit like the, different, the, the men feeling the different parts of the elephant. You know, we, we get a different impression of the thing based on where we have contact, direct contact with reality.
1: As we look at the health care reform going on, um, a bill just passed. And some people seem to think, oh, this is great. We we now, you know, our kids can stay on our insurance longer and the insurance companies can't drop us. And this is all, you know, maybe not ideal. We didn't get single payer, but, you know, we've made a step forward. And other people think this is socialism and this is <laughs> the end of the world as we know it and – uh, this you know the next thing they're going to want to do is take away our guns and it's all part of this grand plot to make us a communist society um, and um, I, I I don't have the sense that people's view of this the the, the, the massively disparate views are because one one group looked at the bill, and the other didn 't One group knows what the bill 's going to do the other doesn 't. I, I have a sense they are both equally knowledgeable and unknowledgeable about what 's actually going on, but that their difference in perception here is based on the the context that their brain brings to this debate and um, and that 's determining what they see i, I don 't think that one group is is evil and is is trying to to lie and convince people about something, they they actually see the bill very differently depending on, you know, on, on a host of other aspects going on in their brains that are affecting their interpretation of what's happening.
2: Yeah. Um, certainly, absolutely, context and, and, and experiences that they bring to bear. Uh, but I want to make a further distinction. uh it, it, in terms of health, the healthcare bill, which I happen to think, you know, personally, is, is a step forward. But um, beyond, you know, the kind of cognitive errors that we as individuals make, um, I think, on some of these political questions, we also have to recognize uh, the kind of corporate propaganda that we're all exposed to. Uh, by and large, there are coincidences of interests. That have a big influence on the kind of information that people get. So, for example, uh, in 2003, when the United States invaded Iraq, polls showed that 67% of Americans believed that Iraq was at least partly responsible for 9/11. Now, of course, as we know, Iraq had nothing to do with 9/11. But how does this happen? Well, uh, you know, you've got uh, you've got corporate uh, media. That are leaving certain suggestions, even if they don't come out and, and, and say that uh, Iraq was responsible for 9 11, sometimes that's implied. One can find various suggestions of that kind in the media. That's not hard to find. On the other hand, apart from uh, this type of propaganda, uh, for example, we, we've seen in the healthcare debate, of course, huge amounts of money spent by the health insurance industry, by big pharma and so forth. So that that's one side of the equation, okay? But then you can talk about the personal equation uh, and people's cognitive errors. And here I think, you know, uh, you can bring in something like, for example, cognitive dissonance. When Americans, uh, let's say Americans that aren't particularly engaged politically, they don't read the newspaper too much, okay? But they, of course, know that the United States has just invaded Iraq. Well, a lot of people, you know, reason like this, I think. Uh, they say, well, look, America's a good country. And if we're attacking Iraq, they must have done something to us, you know. We wouldn't just attack somebody for no reason. So that's, you know, that's a kind of a personal cognitive error that meshes um, very nicely together with with sometimes the kind of propaganda that we get.
1: The uh, I, I just love the the beauty of of the extension of your work on on how we perceive things and how. We, we, can, we can apply these basic principles of how our brain works to the major political issues of our day, to health care. I mean, it's hopefully there's this while we hear from the partisans on either side, that's who you hear. I suspect there's this unheard from group in the middle who don't have such strong feelings and who are wondering, gee, what, what is the truth here? Uh, because the, because one side's telling me one thing that it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, the other people are telling me that it's the worst thing you know since uh, you know the fall of Pompeii, and and surely the you know the truth, the the real level of illumination is somewhere in the middle.
2: Right. Well, I I, I hope you're right, and I think that that may be true that there are those people out there.
1: Well, I wonder to what extent. We can, we can harness our, our mental perceptions and put them to good use to improving patients' health care. Um, aside from the health care reform bill, um, we Americans probably need a better diet, um, probably need to smoke less, uh, drink less. Um, are, are there ways that, that we can use th- the way our mind thinks to modify our health behaviors um, t- towards, um, t- towards a better, healthier living?
2: Well, you know, what I teach my students in my critical thinking course is, you know, so once we've reviewed all these cognitive errors, I say then, okay, well, we don't want to have all these errors. Uh, how can we learn to think better? What I basically uh, present to the students is to take more advantage of the scientific method, of scientific thinking because I think, that scientific think, I think that critical thinking is, in fact, scientific thinking. And one of the things about the scientific method, I remember a student years ago said to me, I guess to be a scientist you have to be very objective. And that really got me thinking, because it's not true. And, you know, you and I know that among our, our scientist friends, uh, there's all kinds of, everybody has their own pet theory, and we're all very human, though we may be scientists. I think, though, that what's really great about the scientific method, there's a lot of psychology already built into the scientific method. There's a lot of recognition of the kind of errors, the cognitive errors, that humans tend to make. So, for example, you talk about double-blind uh, double procedures. Those are there uh, to, to prevent two kinds of cognitive error, uh, the placebo effect on the part of the patient and experimenter bias on the part of, of the experimenter, or in this case, perhaps the doctor who's evaluating the patient. So there's this recognition that's already built into the scientific method of the kind of failings that humans tend to make. And I describe the scientific method as a method by which fallible, subjective humans can nevertheless, if they sort of follow the rules, arrive at relatively objective conclusions. So that I think that, you know, we really should make the scientific method, in my view, much more used in everyday life. It's not just for scientists. I think it's for everybody.
1: I want to share with you along those lines um, some thoughts on, on the mechanism for placebo improvements in, in research studies. Uh-huh. Uh, you can imagine um, you're in charge of a clinical trial, and um, you know the people who want to be in your trial are uninsured Americans, people who don't have good access to medical care. And they're suffering with a g- disease, and um, they come to enter the trial, and uh, you measure the severity of the disease. Now, you have to have a certain level of severity to get in the study. Uh-huh. Uh, let's say, um, well, on a scale of uh, 0 to 100 on some measure, you have to have a severity of at least 50. So you, um, you measure the patient's uh, disease, and, and it comes out to 45, and you go – Darn, uh, you don't quite meet the the, um, entry criteria. Tell you what, uh, let me look at you again. Uh, Let me recheck. And and then you look at it again and – well, let's say it's a skin disease and you had to measure how red or thick and scaly the spots were. And you said, well, on a scale of it was a zero to four scale before you had to be a I mean, I, I said you were a two, but I, it was really a two or a three. We'll count you as a three. Right. I mean, it's not a lie. You're either a two or a three. It's somewhere in that subjective range. So we're going to err on the high side of the nor- of the reasonable range. And sure enough, when they recheck your score, now you're a 65 and you get in the study. Now, when they bring you back, you're back down to 45. Now, you haven't really changed at all. Uh But the perception of your score has changed because initially, you know, I'm not saying it's because the doctor makes more money for each subject they enroll and how that might affect your perception of how red and scaly something is. But also, you know, the patient is uninsured and needs medical care and you want to help them. So your mind has every reason to want to say, oh, yeah, it's on the – higher side of this subjective score. You may actually even see it as darker or as redder than you might at the next visit when they're already in. And, and you know, not every s- study is a, a skin disease study, where but you could imagine a blood pressure study where you have to be a blood pressure 140 over 90 to get in the study, and they measure your blood pressure, and, you know, it's 130 over 80, and they say, well, uh, here's what you do, you go up and down those stairs over there, um, or or just come back and, listen, let me just tell everybody in the room to be quiet, and, and let me really listen close for when I hear you, first hear your blood pressure, and sure enough, now you're 140 over 90, and you get in the study, but they don't. They don't do those same conditions the next time, and back, sure enough, you're back yeah. down to 130 over 80 at the next visit. And people t- think that something magical has happened with the placebo improving, and when it was really a change in the brain's perception based on the context of an initial, you know, entry visit to a study versus a, a return visit.
2: Yes, and you're led, and you're led to a false conclusion. Uh, and I think again, this yeah, this illustrates why uh, these double-blind procedures are are so important. That uh, the the doctor or the person who's evaluating the patient, you know, um, sh- should be blind to to what condition of the experiment this patient is in. And in a case like like you're describing, uh, the evaluation of the the blood pressure or whatever needs to be separated from the decision about whether to put the, the subject into, into the tr- uh, clinical trial group.
1: Yes. We, we did one little analysis where we looked at people who had psoriasis, which is a condition of uh, skin disease with a red scale spots on the skin, and um, it's often associated with joint problems and arthritis. And there's some new drugs out that have been tested, and they tested these drugs in psoriasis And there was about a 20% improvement in the placebo group. Uh They tested the drugs in patients with arthritis, and there was a 20% improvement in the placebo group. But they also looked at the psoriasis. You mean
2: the arthritis group? Uh, I'm sorry. There was a a 20% improvement in both uh, placebo and arthritis,
1: right? No, no, I'm sorry. In the skin disease studies of psoriasis, there's a 20% improvement in the placebo group. The psoriasis gets a whole lot better. Yeah. In the arthritis. The arthritis in, in the drug group gets a whole lot better, but in the placebo group, there was a 20% improvement uh-huh. in the arthritis. They also looked at the skin involvement in the, in the arthritis study. Now, it, it, there was no requirement for how severe your skin had to be in the arthritis study. There was no improvement in the psoriasis in the arthritis study, in the placebo group. So only when the thing that you were looking at was an entry criterion uh, where there was a reason to err on the high side. Uh-huh. You know, did you see improvements in the placebo group? And so, you know, I just wonder if, if there's even any way of showing that there's any improvement in the placebo group, you know, it would be nice if we could harness this placebo effect to improve patients' lives without actually giving them a drug. But my sense is there, there may be no way of telling whether the placebo... Um, group is improving because they're really improving or just because of the way we measure it, because there's, I'm not sure there's a way of doing a blinded, controlled, placebo controlled study of the placebo effect.
2: Well, I, I think that there are studies that get at that. Um, I think that uh, one can, uh, there, there are ways of, of, of taking independent objective measures, I think, and um, but it's funny in the placebo effect because uh, I tend to look at it in my course as an error in thinking, that, that, that uh, people are re- reporting that they're doing better when it's really just the belief or the wish that they're doing better. On the other hand, uh, other people look at the placebo effect as, as something, as you're suggesting, as something that's potentially uh, a treatment method. Um, so it, it's a very tricky issue.
1: Well, Alan, I I greatly appreciate your time on the show today. Uh, I I greatly appreciate you sharing your work with uh, me for my book, Compartments. Uh, But on top of that, I just want to say again, I am just in awe of your science, Uh, uh, the way you are studying the way the brain works with these controlled visual illusions. It's really uh, a wonderful thing that um, our listeners probably should become more familiar with.
2: Well, you're very kind, Steve and uh, I, I enjoyed reading your entire book and uh, and this has been a fascinating conversation uh, on on uh, what I think are very important issues, so uh, I hope more people will think about these
1: matters. Alan's work uh, is critically important to understanding health care because it's critically important to understanding how we perceive pretty much anything When we look at healthcare care reform, there's so much going on it. It, you know, you know, it might even remind one of of the OJ trial and how, um, you know, whether people thought he was guilty or not, and there was, how the trial went, um, dependent on their background. Whereas, you know, uh, whites might have thought one thing, blacks something completely different. Uh, here we have in the healthcare reform debate, people on one side saying, "Oh, it's terrible," people on the other side saying, "No, it's great. It could even be better." Um, so much of what we see in this depends not just on what's there, but on our emotions and our desires. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. We can see very clearly, um, other people's fallacies, other the mistakes other people will make. It's really hard to see our own a lot of the time. Um, this kind of problem, uh, you know, is one that probably malpractice attorney would would note about doctors, and doctors themselves note that if if you're used to seeing patients who come in with headaches as having you know nothing to worry about, it's just a mild headache, then you know you, you may be more likely to miss the you know really severe weird event that's you know very uncommon uh, because your initial perceptions of it would be that it's you know something that you really don't need to worry about. This, the effect of context on our way of viewing the world is truly critically important. Um, I would encourage you to um, take a look and uh, at some of the visual illusions that you can find on the Internet. I mean, this, these are a fabulous way to really get a sense of how uh, our minds function, how we can be tricked uh, into seeing something that isn't there, um, to recognize uh, the limitations of the way we look at the world. Uh, I think it's it's it gives one a sense of humility. Um, it humbles one to say to, to to see this and to realize, you know, my way of looking at the world may not be the only way of looking at the world out there. Um, my way of thinking about this. May be a function, at least in part, of of who I am and, and my experiences, and other people may look at it differently for very good reasons. And you know, in, in some of these healthcare issues, um, everybody has the same ultimate goal: for patients to get great, great medical care, to to, to have uh, uh, access to to the best possible treatments, and. They, they share the same goal, and they may see different ways of getting to the goal, but they shouldn 't um, disparage people who have other thoughts about it because they really the ultimate aims are are, are truly the same well, I hope that 's a, a valuable and um, a, a valuable lesson I, I think seeing um, dr gilchrist 's work. Uh, is one way to learn about this he has a book that 's out now uh, called "Seeing Black and White," uh, published by oxford university press um, there 's some gorgeous illusions in the book, but i 'll tell you it 's a very technical book and probably not one that he would necessarily recommend to the lay reader, um, but you can get on the internet and um, and go and google visual illusions and you 'll find some some really strikingly entertaining illusions. Uh, that also um, are very informative and, and in some ways humbling. Well, that's our show for today. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Until next week, I wish you uh, the best of health. Thanks for listening to
0: the show today. Remember to go to doctorscore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to health care empowerment. That's D R S C O R E dot com, DrScore dot com. And we'll see you next week, right here on Getting Better Healthcare.